This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing The Page Turner. I'll kick us off. The Page Turner is a French film, and it came out in 2006. A young pianist named Melanie tries out for a conservatory. While she's auditioning, someone comes into the room and asks one of the judges, Ariane, a member of a famous trio, for an autograph. The judge not only allows this interruption, she carries on as if it ought to have no effect on Melanie. But the disruption completely throws her off her game. She botches the rest of the audition and gives up piano. Years later, Melanie finds herself working as an intern at a law firm. One of the partners is, as it turns out, married to Ariane. When Melanie hears that the lawyer is looking for someone to provide childcare for his son, she offers to take the job. After her internship is complete, she moves into the lawyer's house and takes up the post. Slowly but surely, Melanie endears herself to Ariane, to the lawyer, and to the young son. Along the way, she discovers that Ariane has developed a case of stage fright after an accident a couple of years ago. It has affected her performances, and the trio is in an increasingly vulnerable position. Ariane is anxious, in part because she is without a competent page turner. Melanie reveals that she reads music, and Ariane invites her to step in. So now Melanie is caring for the son, and she's turning pages for the mother. Initially, Melanie is a great help to Ariane, bolstering her confidence. But as Melanie builds up a store of trust, she starts spending little bits of it here and there. After one performance, she gives Ariane a kiss on the cheek that is long enough to be awkward, but not so long that Ariane can be absolutely certain it's out of the ordinary. During a game of hide-and-seek, she tries to hold Ariane's hand. Is she flirting, or is she being playful? Eventually, Melanie goes so far as to deliberately fail to show up for a critical performance. This proves fatal to the trio. Ariane badly botches things, and they stop getting gigs. But a quick word of apology from Melanie has Ariane unable to recognize the ill intent. With her career in shambles, Ariane is in an emotionally vulnerable state. She develops romantic feelings for Melanie. On the eve of Melanie's departure, Melanie asks Ariane for an autograph. Ariane slips one under her door, but leaves a love note. Ariane sneaks out of the house in the early morning, leaving the note on the lawyer's desk. When he returns home, he reads it, and their marriage presumably collapses. This being a French film, it is never stated outright that Melanie is deliberately seeking revenge for the interruption during the audition all those years ago. Yet the film is constructed in an order that makes this abundantly clear. It's very well put together. This problem of the stifled artist who hates the world that delivered rejection is a common idea, though I can't say I've seen many films about it. Generally, filmmakers prefer to consider artists who succeed or whose success comes at a cost. But every teenager eventually discovers that Adolf Hitler was a failed painter. Then they ask the counterfactuals, if Hitler were accepted as a painter, would the world have been spared his ire? It's more than a bit simplistic. Fascism did not succeed in Germany simply because of Hitler's personality, but because of the economic and political conditions that gave fascism a competitive advantage. Attributing it all to the man gives him far too much credit. Still, it is an evocative image. Hitler in the artist's studio, painting his buildings. If you've never looked at Hitler's art, by the way, it's mostly buildings. He was a talented painter, but lacked the originality that was necessary to hit it big in the art world. In The True Believer, Eric Hoffer makes the argument that failed artists, writers, and academics often make for the best fanatics. Unable to make their way in the world by creating, they set about destroying the old society. For Hoffer, such people are indispensable for mass movements because they have no stake in the society that rejected their talents and will take drastic action to see that society and its values undone. Every movement that succeeds in delivering change must attract a large contingent of such people. These people are thought to be politically effective precisely because they are so deeply morally flawed. Their desire for vengeance is politically appropriated and deployed to reconfigure social relations. 
It is only because they are so morally debased that they become capable of taking the decisive actions that scare off happier people with more successful careers. There are counter-arguments. Gandhi argued that the means these people deploy ultimately frustrates their ends. Because they create the new society through violence, the new society incorporates the violence that was used in its construction. The Russian Revolution was won by the Red Army, so the Red Army becomes a permanent fixture of the Soviet state, the center of its power. It is for this reason that many Marxists make a firm distinction between the proletariat, the industrial workers who have jobs even if they're not very good jobs, and the lumpen proletariat, the disorganized people at the very bottom of the class system. It is not just that the lumpen proletariat is susceptible to drug addiction or is not integrated into civil society organizations, though these are significant issues. Even when they can be politically mobilized, they tend to lack discipline, to take action that is not tactical or strategic based on alleviating psychological pain. If politics becomes an alternative to drug abuse, politics is performed for the same reasons drugs are taken, to alleviate pain or avoid reality, rather than to construct anything better. These days, much of the focus is on downwardly mobile professionals, the people born into middle-class families who try and fail to acquire secure, prestigious places in the professions. This kind of person is clearly not part of the lumpen proletariat. If anything, their background is more affluent than most people's. But these days, much is expected of middle-class children. Their families view a traditional working-class job as a form of failure. So when they are pushed into the working class, or when they get a job in the professions that pays like a working class job, they experience this as an offense, an affront. That, I think, is the situation Melanie finds herself in. Her parents were butchers, not wealthy, but certainly not poor. She thought she could make it as an artist, and they believed in her enough to support her trying out for the conservatory. For Melanie, a law internship isn't something she treasures, it's something she feels backed into. She cannot be content as a paper pusher or as a page turner. She has tasted, if only briefly, the ambrosia of the artist's life. There are striking similarities between the downwardly mobile 21st century young professional and the 19th century lumpen proletarian. Today's young people are atomized. They are online, but they aren't embedded in civil society organizations. So, when they do politics, they lack discipline, and they often act impulsively and imprudently. If you were a railway worker or a truck driver, you'd probably regard these young professionals the same way a 19th century worker regarded the lumpen proletariat, as unreliable partners. And while the young professional is angry enough at the world to be unstrategic, the young professional still entertains the hope of one day making it in the arts. This prevents these young professionals from actually carrying out revolutionary acts. In the 19th century, the lumpen proletarian might exploit a demonstration to rob a shop or burn a building. In the 21st century, the young professional takes discursive positions that are psychologically satisfying but politically inert. In some cases, the young professional tries to leverage political energy as a justification for getting a prestigious post. In the page-turner, Melanie just sets about ruining Ariane's life. She doesn't participate in any kind of social or political organization. She doesn't try to do anything constructive with her resentment. If young professionals just settle for ruining the careers of the professionals who are older or more successful than them, what does that achieve? Not much. The revenge fantasy is many things, but it's not politics. Anyway, I like the film. Let's see what Helen has to say about it. Yeah, this is a film I've seen loads of times. Because um, it was one I used to always, I used to be a French teacher of teenage boys, and it was one that the teenage boys used to love to watch. LOL, I wonder why. I mean, obviously, there's a slightly kind of like um, sexual fantasy element in terms of like the lesbian relationship and the BDSM side with the like woman taking the sort of sadistic revenge. But also, the, you know, just what you were saying about the, the revenge aspect and channeling, you know, we can sort of reflect upon what's happened to, uh, young people today channeling the energies out of political action, partly because, you know, the sphere for political contestation has, uh, re you know, receded because of um, capitalist impulses. Um, but, you know, there's something very libidinal about it. This <laughs> sort of idea that you can exact revenge. And the funny thing is, it's like psychoanalytically, you could say on one, on one level, you know, that the encounter with Ariane, this, um, you know, this 
artiste, this famous pianist that this young girl idolized and um, in her failure to enter the conservatory, you know, not only is this a really famous um, pianist who has all sort of like, you know, magical genius powers in some, in some ways and some from some, you know, you know, imagined perspective, but also she had the power to take away the dreams from this young woman. But then encountering her in real life, you know, she's, she's a divided subject. She suffers with stage fright, but that's not enough. To take away, you know, you could say that, you know, really encountering the the um, the divided nature of the other, you know, you come to understand, blah 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 blah. But you know, humans operate on this um, logical and illogical level, and this sort of libidinal level, where even if you know it's not really their fault, or they're just a divided subject, or they just made a mistake, you still really want to exact revenge. And so, there's, you know, one of the last shots it has. Um, Deborah Francois uh, walking away and she has sort of a little wry smile about it. So it's still enjoyable, you know, even if, even if almost the punishes, punishment is not necessary when you encounter the fact that this person is suffering already as a divided subject. But, um, I kind of wanted to talk about this because I was thinking about a movie to talk about, uh, in terms of this idea of the surplus genius. Vendorin, <laughs> I guess you kind of touched on it a little bit. And I think we talked about it a little bit, um, recently, but it's kind of a phenomenon I've been thinking about, um, because I feel like one of the um, aspects, one dimension that kind of colors the millennial experience, perhaps, is this idea of being a thwarted genius. And I kind of wanted to think about, like, what are the material conditions that have created this? And also, you know, where is this idea right and wrong? Because in some ways, um, you know, we do live in um, not a, a meritocracy, but like a... <laughs> I mean, obviously the term midwit is like one that gets used a lot. What's what's like the Latin or Greek for like average? You know, I think about um things like I'll talk about social media in a second, but things like reality television and um you know, the idea of our um our movie stars sort of descending to earth. They're no longer these sort of mystical um beings like a Marilyn Monroe or a Grace Kelly, but rather um and this is something that's very much part of the uh, capitalist discourse, the master must be divided or apparently divided. So you have, you know, Harry and Meghan and Harry confessing all of his issues as a divided subject, but really, you know, um, still the the person who owns the means, you know, who's benefiting from the sort of the issues of surplus value and all that kind of thing. But, you know, you kind of have these um, reality TV stars plucked from obscurity who become famous and you have all these sort of, um, you know, uh, contestant shows where you can be a random chef, a baker on the street, but then you can win Great British Bake Off, or you can be like a, a random person who's just on YouTube, on Instagram, and do a reel where you confess your embarrassing encounter with a, an ex boyfriend, and it goes viral, and then you have millions of followers. And you, you know, I think about it as well like this one really big um, uh, internet phenomenon was that guy. Uh, Italian guy who would just react to people's stupid videos on the internet and sort of put a face of like, what the hell, what the hell is the point of this? And he became massively famous with tens of millions of followers. And this is part of the, um, the lie of capitalism. In some ways, you know, ideologically, we feel like, oh, it's heartwarming. You know, isn't it nice? Isn't it nice that it's more fair these days and less elite or whatever? But on the other, it's much more, um, ensnaring on a libidinal level because it makes us believe that we could be one of the people who makes it, we could be plucked from obscurity, we could do it too. So in some ways, now the people who are sort of elevated by capitalism, which kind of captures us in within the kind of um libidinal dynamic of capitalism, are not aspirational, but like just like us. But then in a way we sometimes might feel like, oh, I could do that too. Hang on, I'm better than this, you know, in a way that that makes us feel more of a genius. And in a way, therefore, it does mean that a lot of people who are excellent, especially I'm going to go on to um, sort of in a Freddie DeBoer sense, the idea of the cult of smart and like the way that um, education has uh, kind of taken off and captured people's uh, childhood childhoods and sort of extracted surplus value from young people. So lots of people are trained to a very, very high level. But these people aren't, there's no really space for these people anymore. So um, there it is, in a sense, you know, materially, it's true that there are lots of thwarted geniuses. But to go on to the sort of Freddie DeBoer idea about the cult, you know, The Cult of Smart was a book that Freddie DeBoer wrote a few years ago. Um, and it's to do with the um, because of the pro pro uh, professionalization of the education system, because of the highly competitive nature of it, and because of the financialization of universities, this has meant that um, things become much, 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 much higher stakes, much more competitive. 
And um, it becomes important that one uh, trains for these various opportunities from much earlier on in life. So one's childhood becomes instead, you know, instead of like a sort of swallows and Amazon, rough and tumble, you know, um, uncapitalized upon uh, moment in life, the training, the hard work, the push towards success and exams mean that this is this is unpaid labor, which um, generates value for uh, the degree for which we all pay a huge amount of money. We have a huge amount of surplus value extracted from us in terms of debt. So, and in order to sort of act as a cover story for that debt, the the standard has to keep getting higher and higher and higher. So, young people work incredibly hard their entire lives and they get into huge amounts of debt, but the debt, in a sense, is only a signifier of the fact that there's no opportunities for them. So, instead of there being enough, enough roles that are paid for, one has to pay to have the opportunity to perhaps later have a role that's paying. And sort of adulthood, in a sense, or... um I would say in a way, you know, adult, adulthood comes much earlier in this order of things. You know, we, we are obviously we're not um, children up chimneys, but there is some element of um, labor extraction going on from a very, very young age. Uh, and so we're kind of confronted with being working subjects, but we don't have like uh, we're not given the value of our labor until a certain point. Which leads to sort of a lack of independence as well and uh, other forms of entrapment, uh, which are forms of sacrifice. Um, but so instead of getting a role or getting a job or getting some kind of credit, what we are given, and often in exchange for money under capitalism, one is given prestige. And often the most prestigious jobs are paid the least precisely because so many people want to do them. So this idea um, of being highly intelligent, highly skilled, highly qualified is almost a way to mystify the lack of payment that young people are getting. So we are given the the we are endowed with a sort of self image of being a genius rather than um being given our fair due in terms of value uh in terms of this sort of uh, educational industrial complex but um you know and you know kind of an overly simplistic way of looking at this is sort of you know our parents will have high expectations for us and we were brought up with too high expectations and we're all spoiled brats who you know consider ourselves much more intelligent than we actually are and then we come to reality and confronted with reality that we're normal like everybody else i think it's much more complicated than that and actually much sadder and that kind of marxist reading maybe says that no in fact there are a lot of geniuses um, but perhaps the signifier of genius is that which we are given or which we endow upon ourselves as a sort of cover story for a sort of fetish, if you will, for um, to cover, to deal with the fact that we have had so much value extracted from us. But in another sense, um, social media today uh, plays into this whole idea of the genius. And I've talked about this a lot of times, but um, what I find interesting about social media is I don't think it is like a technology like anything else. It's not like, you know, we could say like, oh, you know, scary television in its early days. Oh, how is this going to transform subjectivity? And in a sense, it does transform subjectivity, but technology is technology. And, you know, it's not really the technology that's the issue. It's how we interlate, interrelate with the technology. So on the one hand, we can say you know, social media is harmless like anything else. But I do think that there's perhaps an element of harm to social media precisely because we haven't philosophized enough about what the potential impact is. And once we can kind of understand the dynamics of social media, perhaps there will be uh, fewer negative effects. But one of the negative effects, of course, is um, the fact that it is a corporate environment, which is to do with labor extraction in terms of uh, value extraction in terms of like the creation of content. But also, um, well, there's two other elements. One um, is that it's it's so uh, dominant in our lives that it replaces civil society and it replaces normal human interaction. And normal human interaction involves recognition. We've talked about kind of the, the idea of the divided subject. But when we are amongst friends in a pub, for example, we um, encounter ourselves in the eyes of the other. This is how psychoanalysis works. We come to view ourselves through the eyes of the analyst. We don't see ourselves. We are only our gazes pointed outwards. And it's only in the encounter of the gaze of the other that we, uh, we witness how we are manifest in the world. And, um, because the other is a divided subject because they speak, this divide, divided subject, subjectivity is part of self consciousness and self consciousness leads to the possibility of sort of discernment. 
And discernment, obviously, is in terms of a value judgment. And so this is all very positive. We wouldn't be speaking subjects unless we um, interacted with other speaking subjects. I mean, that's a whole uh, journey from birth into subjectivity through a second birth, but that's a whole other story. But um, just the point being, it's, it's really important to come to understand who one is in terms of um, the other, the divided other. And in reality, this involves, you know, our siblings and our best friends, those who know us best, ribbing, ribbing us a bit and cutting us down to size. But what has happened with social media is precisely because that um, interpersonal interaction, that intersubject interaction is, is taken away because it's a corporate environment where we are all projecting to one, other, one another, whether we like it or not, wholeness and completeness. This is partly because of the corporate nature of the platforms. So they operate on the logic of capitalism, which is oppositional, which tells us that we are lacking, but only contingently lacking, not existentially lacking. And that there is a, ho a whole subject or a whole object or commodity, but on social media, the commodity is generally another person that can fulfill us, whose message can fulfill us. So we to others are that undivided commodity. And to us, we see a whole stream of undivided others that we imagine have some promise or have something that we don't have. Um, and this is, this is also sustained by the logic of screen media because the screen, the whole history of screen media, we relate to screen images because of the history of, um, of film, basically, and the sort of prestigious fantasy nature of it. We, we relate to the other on screen as a sort of undivided, uh, almost religious kind of godlike other. But the, so, so in this sense, we kind of up the ante on this sort of like, um, lack of division within ourselves. Not only do we imagine everybody else around us is undivided. So we feel inadequate ourselves and therefore might have a greater sense of, you know, um, compensatory self importance, but we also don't have other people feeding back to us our own self-division. And this is also partly to do with the fact that we all mutually understand that there's some element of auto-branding going on in terms of what we are presenting as a product in terms of our self-image on social media. So we can't, um, social media, as maybe some of us have encountered, and I, I know some friends have, when we try to rib each other in a friendly way on social media, it doesn't work because the stakes are so high because we all know that each other's social media platform is essentially, you know, themselves in the marketplace, in the marketplace of ideas. And we're not, it's not really the dumb thing to not be like, heart, 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 I love you. Aren't you amazing? Which again ups the ante on perhaps our own sense of, um, undivision or at the very least the image that we are giving to others and that others read into us in terms of, um, a lack of self-division. And the idea of sort of a genius carries with it this idea of um, wholeness, completeness, perfection, at one with the essence of the universe in touch with some kind of brilliance and, you know, understanding of the undercurrents of the ways of the world. But nobody really, you know, is that. Um, and the whole way that social media has replaced um, interpersonal interactions means that we become detached from our own reality in terms of being ourselves lacking subjects and the other um, as a lacking subject also. All right, Nina, it's your turn. All right. Uh, back to the film a little bit. Uh, not that you weren't talking about the film. Uh, everything follows from the film. But I, I wanted to add uh, some comments about the content of the film uh, that, I, that I think was, uh, was, you know, not covered by Benjamin slightly. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I enjoyed this film. It was, it was creepy. It was slightly Hitchcockian. The, the lead woman was sort of by turns kind of... Uh, uh, zombie-like in her sort of drive to uh, commit revenge or take revenge uh, and seductive uh, and in turn, you know, her, her sort of, you saw more and more breasts as the film went on. She starts off being quite sort of demure and wearing sort of formal shirts and, and looking very sort of prissy. And then, you know, as the film goes on, she gets more and more like kind of slutty and, and breasty in a sort of classy French way. Um, 
I think that it's absolutely, uh, well, it was clear to me at least that she deliberately chose this law firm. It wasn't a random reencounter. The whole, the her whole life is aimed towards this, this act of revenge for this, this woman in her egotism in the early scene, uh, taking the, the uh, autograph, uh, signature and, and putting off this, this young girl. Um, this is, it's, 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 it's quite a good version of this, but this is all French films from about, I don't know, the late 60s onwards are basically the same film. Okay, this is my theory about French film. And, and actually, the, the paradigm film that they, they take their cue from is, is actually an Italian film. It's by Pasolini, and it's Pasolini's Theorem with the Terence Stamp character who disrupts the bourgeois family. One My favourite film, actually, uh, of all time. I think it's a super, superb film uh, on every level. Uh, just perfect film. But all French cinema basically has the same <laughs> form, which is bourgeois family, Something disrupts the bourgeois family. Bourgeois family is never the same again. Literally every single post 60s French film <laughs> has this form. I've seen so many films like this, one of which even featured like a gopher. There was one that had like an animal that disrupted the bourgeois family. There's one where the woman, fall, I think it's Charlotte Rampley, I think she falls in love with the gorilla and they disrupt the bourgeois family. You know, it can be a person, it can be an object. It's literally like the unconscious of France is the bourgeois family being disrupted it <laughs> like this is it's it's so true it's so true next if you watch any post 60s french film this is what they are about that every single french film and they take their cue from Pasolini. so in that sense it was it was enjoyable partly as a you know reminder of this very french <laughs> pathology and of course the the premise of the film is that uh the best form of revenge is sort of a weird kind of seduction, which is also very French. It's not, I mean, although there are violent scenes, and this is what I wanted to add in, right? She deliberately uh, works for this law firm because it's the husband of the of the woman. It's not an accident. She is violent towards the son. She holds his head underwater. The, the son engages in forms of breathing uh well, sort of holding his breath underwater like kids do, and he times himself. They have a swimming pool in this bourgeois house. The, whole, the house also resembles the house in Pasolini's theorem as well. Like it's an obvious homage, I would say. If you know the the, the Pasolini film very well, uh, I was struck by uh, you know where people take the scenes. They do almost similar scenes. Um, anyway, she she engages in these quite violent, very creepy uh, actions. Uh, holds the boy's head underwater. She uh, forces him to practice a, a piece of a bark, a bark study at much faster BPM tempo. Uh, and he's worried about his hands getting tendonitis. You know, and and by the end of the film, his his hands are hurting. He's in pain. You know, she's she's doing these little sadistic actions towards the child of this woman. Um, and there's also a, a great scene where, where the cellist in the trio, this guy is a bit sleazy, tries it on with her, um, and she picks up his cello and spikes his foot with the, with the cello. Very violent scene and, it, you know, causes damage to this man. And it's obvious that in a way it's because he's not part of her plan, right? Like his, him being seduced by her is incidental to her single-minded goal, which is to fuck this woman up completely as revenge for this <laughs> minor egotistical distraction a million years ago. Um, and, you know, so she, she does this violent action, but of course it then makes her also less and less trustworthy. And it's interesting when you have films where you spend a lot of time with the protagonist, um, but they become more and more alien to you, right? So that this kind of form of disidentification with the main character, um, because they are, you know, you, well, you might have sympathy with her. I mean, it's, it's left open, you know, it's, it's not a didactic film. I think it's, it's, it has this form. It's a familiar form. The revenge film is also a very familiar form. Um, I would say at this point, um, and well, for a long time, I mean, lots of tragedy of revenge films from the start. Like everybody loves a good revenge story. Um, and I, you know, I think it captures very well this bourgeois affectation, you know, the sort of stultification, the repressed sexual desire, like this kind of, you know, everyone is very well dressed. Everyone is very professional, but uh, it's all a bit sort of uptight. And then, and, and then the sort of unleashing of seduction, you know, the entry of the, the, uh, the the alien thing into the bourgeois household, right? And uh, I think this is it's you know I I enjoyed this film. I I think in relation to what Helen was saying, like I had a very interesting conversation with someone earlier today who I hadn't met before who wanted to speak to me about being cancelled. 
right? Lots of people are, <laughs> message me or want to have a coffee with me to talk about their own cancellation or their fear of being cancelled. So I've met lots of people and I, I'm happy to do it. I, I you know, I, I think it's good for people to talk about these things. Um, so without going into detail, this, this person had been extremely um, cancelled, right? Like lost all of his, all of his work, something he'd been working on himself that he'd set up for 10 years, had been dropped by everybody, uh, lost loads of friends, been publicly denounced for something which wasn't even his fault, right? Like a, cra- a really, really severe, ridiculous cancellation, um, no due process whatsoever, just a, a series of kind of uh, fearful moves where people had, had dropped him. But what really struck me, I mean, he's a very, very nice person, very, you know, no, nobody deserves this this to happen to them. And, you know, it, hopefully this is a form of uh, social pathology which will end, but let's go deeper, right? Like what motivates people to do this to people who have actually done something in the world, right? Like this guy had set up loads of things. He'd helped lots of people. He's very energetic, right? This guy had a lot of energy. He was very uh, self-motivated. He had done a lot of good in the world, but he'd also achieved things, right? Off his own back, right? And this becomes very, very like oppressive to people who precisely feel like they are not succeeding, right? Whether it's by going through the structures or by doing their own thing, right? And they, let's say they're not succeeding at either, and precisely, you see somebody who makes it look easy or, you know, has a lot of energy, is very self-motivated, has actually gotten things done. And you think, I hate this person, right? And this person represents everything that I'm against because they have something that I want or they've managed to do something in the way that I can't, right? But the truth is, the only reason, the only way people ever get anything done is by this kind of drive, right? Like, it's... It's not to say that we don't live in a culture where people are recognized for nothing, right? But this is the problem about being recognized for who you are, because nobody is anything. I mean, you could say, right, look, this person's very good looking. Okay, this, let's say you have a beautiful woman. She's like 21. She's really attractive. Okay, is it her fault that she's attractive? I mean, yeah, it's probably she, she works out, she doesn't eat pancakes and biscuits and crisps, right, in order to maintain her figure, right? But it's a kind of accident, right, of nature. Like, she didn't choose to look the way she did, right? It's not like she, I don't know, has learned an instrument or a skill or practice for hours, which is what you have to do if you're a professional musician. If you're a classical musician, I briefly went to music school when I was a teenager. I was very into music, but I definitely didn't have what it what it took or what it takes to be a professional musician. But I was studying with people who did. I had, I was studying with people who had uh, really pushy parents. And I thought, oh, my God, this isn't going to end well for those kids necessarily, unless they happen to also be very good and very self-motivated because they were being pushed from outside. But I was also working with kids who are like really good, right? Really talented. And it's very nice to be able to recognize the talent of other people without feeling envious. You know, and I didn't feel envious because I just thought, oh, they're just really good, you know, and they deserve to be successful. And and actually being a classical musician is very, very hard. You know, you get paid very poorly if you're in, even if you're in a very famous orchestra, the hours are terrible. There's, you know, it's, it's a really, really difficult job, very, very admirable job. And I think this film does actually quite good job of, 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 of sort of obliquely revealing this this world the classical world you know actually what it what it is like to be a classical musician um and i think it's how to put it like to go to, to this question of genius i mean true geniuses are completely cracked right to be a genius is not something you can achieve from within the system it's not something you are by virtue of working really hard or being recognized by millions of people on social media, like the most genius types of people in the history of mankind are completely broken people, right? By which I mean they're cracked wide open. The the spirit of the age is channeled through them. They become conduits for everything that's happening around them. But it's a very, very like mentally unstable position to be in. If we think about great artists or people today who might be considered geniuses, um, they are tend to have very difficult lives. Right. This is not necessarily something to envy. One could admire, I think, the products of people who have genuinely gone beyond and produce work that in, in whatever domain that somehow captures what it is to be human in a way that perhaps other people haven't been able to do before. You know, they create a new 
uh, way of seeing things that somehow has a an appeal without being populist. Let's say you know it's not tacky, it's not repetitive, it's original somehow, but we we understand it even though it's new. Let's say some definition. But there are very few geniuses, <laughs> and actually very few people will succeed in in any way. And whilst I don't think that it's enough to say you just need to work hard, and there is an ideology of hard work which is um, used by older generations, I, I would say boomers uh, often talk about how hard they worked, which may be true and often is true. But at the same time, they also benefited from certain contingent economic shifts that had nothing to do with how hard people were working, right? So there is an ideology of hard work, but there's equally an, an, an equally oppressive and equally useless ideology of, oh, everyone's brilliant right? Everyone gets a gold star, right? This is not actually very helpful, especially to young people, because you there will be setbacks. There will be people who tell you your shit and uh, criticize you, and you will do things wrong, and you need to get better. And I think this idea that you are... I saw some tweets the other day that I thought captured it very well. It was like, if you tell people that they are who they are, and they'll never change, that they have a set identity and that they should be brilliant and they should be rewarded and they should be recognized and they confront failure and disappointment and they don't feel like they're succeeded, you are going to create a a whole load of people who feel absolutely unbelievably terrible about themselves and have no uh, idea how to get out of it because we don't have an idea anymore of what it means to develop as a character. What does it mean to actually become someone else, you know, to work through hardship, to deal with disappointment, you know, because you're telling people, oh, no, you're brilliant the way you are, right? It, it, that's actually a terrible thing to say to people. <laughs> um, and, you know, this, I'll leave it there. <laughs> you know, I've been kind of related to this, thinking a lot lately about this question of spiritual egalitarianism. You know, uh, you know, for Gandhi or for a lot of Christian ethicists, we all have souls that come from God. And therefore, all of our souls are capable of, of being oriented toward truth. Mm-hmm. You know, Gandhi argues that no matter what your role is in society, you have the ability to pursue or to follow truth just as well as anybody else does. And if that were true, then there would be no geniuses. There would just be souls that uh, are uh, ruling themselves and souls that aren't. Then you have other people like uh, Plato, who uh, argued that certain kinds of souls were more oriented toward this first principle than others, and that you could even put into kind of a hierarchy, which particular kinds of souls, which particular crafts are more oriented toward the first principle than others. And I think part of what's going on here is in liberal democracy, there's a kind of implicit commitment to spiritual egalitarianism that uh, suggests that everybody can be a genius because the idea of genius itself contradicts spiritual egalitarianism. It suggests that some people have certain kinds of souls that are more oriented toward truth, or that certain kinds of people are the kinds of people that are able to do certain kinds of advanced spiritual um, intellectual things, and other kinds of people can't. And I think that this leads a lot of people to try to be people that maybe they're not capable of being. Uh, And it leads people to think that hard work will enable them to do things that really just depend on the kind of person that you are. Uh, I don't want to come off as strongly anti-egalitarian here, but I think that one of the consequences of spiritual egalitarianism is a strong emphasis on personal responsibility. If all souls are able to pursue truth to the same degree, then if you're not doing great work, it must be because of a fault in you, in your character, in the way that you have organized your soul. 
Whereas if there are certain kinds of people that are just more oriented toward the spiritual and certain kinds of people that aren't, that have more physical kinds of roles that are given to them, then if you are judging someone who is a really great physical hunter, athlete, sports person, uh, someone who's great at, at making things with their hands in space... You know, if you're looking at that person and going, oh, you know, you're not, uh, you're not a philosopher. Well, that person has a different role given to them. And it's not really appropriate to say, uh, you know, that, they're, that there's something wrong with them. And I think that one of the things that, that Christianity did in suggesting spiritual egalitarianism is that it, it created this notion that if you are not the genius, you're responsible for the fact that you're not. And that means that if you're not the genius, then you are to feel bad about the fact that you're not. And uh, the, the only way you can avoid feeling bad about it is to make up an excuse. And there's got to be an excuse because there's nothing in your soul that outfits it for some particular purpose. There's nothing in who you are in your talent that outfits you for a particular pur- purpose. And I think that in that way, spiritual egalitarianism has led to a lot of very right-wing forms of of politics, or what we would now today classify as right-wing forms of politics, that involve responsibilizing individuals for not having the specific talents that are currently valued in the society, or which are currently equated with having genius. And it leads to this constant arms race of hard work, which can never produce that kind of result, because that kind of result requires a certain orientation that is just not given to everybody. Uh, and if we instead value some of these more physical orientations on their own terms, value the things that come out of them, instead of judging them in relation to, say, the philosopher's life or the artist's life, we might better appreciate the great variety of people that we have. Yeah, I mean, just to go back to the genius thing, it's like this, like I, like I was trying to say, you know, there's nothing good about being a genius. <laughs> You know, this is this is not something that people should be, I don't know, if, if you like, either encouraged to think of themselves as automatically being or something that's necessarily desirable. I mean, it's it's, you know, to be to work hard and to be skilled at something it, and to enjoy it. Right. Seems to me in a way the highest form of of, of living. Right. So whatever it is. And, I, you know, I agree with Benjamin that if we had a world that valued equally or as insofar as it's possible, different skills. Right. And, and whether this is in terms of economic reward or social value or both, you know, I mean, somebody who's uh, a brilliant uh, masseuse, let's say. Right. Is brilliant and skilled in that trade. Someone who's a brilliant singer is brilliant in that particular area. Right. Why? On what basis are we supposed to say that one person being a brilliant nurse is, I don't know, of less value than someone who can manipulate pie charts and make lots of money? Right. Like it just, there's no a priori sense in which one is more worthy person. And, and in, in many ways, we would actually say the person who cares for somebody, i.e. the nurse, is of more value in on literally every metric than somebody who, who can make a computer make more figures on a screen. Right. Literally. You know, the, the person who is caring for others and, 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 and helping people stay alive and, and stay, uh, you know, fit or whatever is, is, is objectively, I don't know, you know, more valued, but paid a lot worse. You know, our, 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 our society is very inverted. I, I think though on the spiritual egalitarianism point, which is an interesting phrase, I, I do agree that there, there are these, uh, uh, I don't know, let's say religious and, and theoretical frameworks in which this is a kind of presupposition. But I wonder if there's a way in which it's perhaps one way of understanding it is more like a capacity, right? It doesn't mean that a capacity is going to be fulfilled in, in, every, in a, every perfect direction. But rather, if you say in the Christian sense that kind of everybody has a soul and everybody is, is divided, actually, you know, not quite psychoanalytically, but everyone is sort of, uh, you know, broken, um, uh, tainted by original sin, but everybody by virtue of having a soul and having free will can endeavor to be slightly better, slightly better version of themselves, right? Whatever they are, whatever it is they're doing. And, and 
you know, we talk about this a lot, but one of the major problems is the the absence of social roles, right? So that nobody really has a sense of duty towards their station in life, but rather it's a kind of free-for-all which creates these desires, let's say, for fame, for what appears to be uh, something great. You know, people are obsessed with making lots of money, but actually lots of very rich people are extremely unhappy, right? There is nothing inherently good about having lots of money. It absolutely sucks to be poor. Nobody should be poor and thinking about money at the other end, right? And we should have a society in which people are prevented from being in that position, and we don't. But at the same time, the, the kind of resentful feeling that often many people have or are encouraged to have towards the very wealthy, whether they've inherited it or um, earned it, so to speak, in inverted commas, right? Of course, is understandable, right? Of course, that kind of resentment uh, exists. It, it's real. It, it makes sense. But at the same time, uh, it's not obvious <laughs> that having lots and lots of money uh, in and of itself uh, will actually get people what it is that they want. Rather, I think the only way that anyone is fulfilled is is if they flourish in ways that are particular to them and feel recognized and valued and have a sense of their own um, innate, uh, how, how to put it, like um, an innate relation to, to the goods that they are able to generate, right? So, so that in the production or in the making, in the playing, in the singing, in the, you know, in the, in the, I don't know, in the shaving, it's, it's about having pride in your work, right? And of course, we could also say we live in a society in which people are not given pride in their work, either because the work they are given is not work they can take pride in, or they don't have access to work in which people can fulfill all they're doing the wrong jobs uh they don't have time they're not able to fulfill uh their capacities or their potentialities right and this is a kind of tragedy on a massive scale right or people are coerced into to work that that they that they don't want to do they're not paid enough and so on and so forth right it's a very unfair world but it, it seems if we can um even something like hobbies right? Hobbies or, or being an amateur, right? An amateur is a lover. An amateur is someone who loves what they do, literally is what it, what it means. And we often use amateur as an insult, but it's not an insult at all. Somebody who enjoys singing in church or somebody who enjoys playing football in an amateur league or a, a minor league or something like this, right? In a way, this is like the most sort of beautiful thing that someone can do. It's not for anything else, you know, someone who enjoys spending time with their family, you know, this is, this is it, right? It's not making money. It's not, I don't know, having likes on a, an app. I don't know. I mean, this is, I mean, just, yeah, I mad? <laughs> talk, talking about this idea of these roles and, and how this automatically brings with it recognition. And again, like in terms of maybe this, you know, talking about this religious dimension, or this Christian dimension, the idea of grace, you know, you accept that you're accepted, you are accepted by your group. And obviously, this is something that's lacking in terms of um, alienation under capitalism, the destruction of civil society and things like this. And in a way, it's understandable that people might want to self-identify as a genius under those when one is not experiencing recognition. But also, um, and I I mean, if you listen to the B side last week, we talked about millennials and kind of lack of recognition. And and I, I, I'm very, very pro-millennial. I think there's lots of very skilled and um, undervalued millennials. But in a way that the idea of um, uh, genius is sort of the, the kind of the archetype in a way, um, you know, the, the sort of like the imagery that goes along with it is this sort of thwarted genius, this Van Gogh who isn't recognized in his lifetime. And this is the perfect ideological supplement for people who aren't recognized for all kinds of other reasons. So if you think about the, you know, the, um, Melanie in the film, it's like the not getting into the conservatory allows her to sustain the fantasy that if only she had gotten to the conservatory, then her life would have been whole and complete. And she continuously doesn't get into the um, conservatory because of this, you know, messed up um, audition. But in a way, we might say, well, weren't there any other opportunities? Was this her only opportunity? And if it was her only opportunity, it was probably more likely that her, her lack of success was to do with the material conditions of her parents than it was to do with her own talent. Maybe, I mean, maybe she just gave up because she didn't like the discomfort or whatever. But the point being is that the material conditions that have let, let's say, not everyone's going to be a genius and being a genius is not so great anyway, but um, 
material conditions have led to a lack of flourishing amongst a lot of very capable people and a lack of recognition in terms of what they can provide for society. Um, and the perfect sort of ideological supplement is, you know, I am a Van Gogh and I'm not recognized in my time, but maybe after my death, I might be recognized. Um, and, it, you know, it's it's a way to self-soothe in light of something that's a bit more ordinarily difficult. Yeah, this point about equal capacities that are not potentially realized, I think that is what kind of Christian leftism is. You know, the, and I think leftism developed out of Christianity in the sense that the leftist says, well, if we're not all able to do the, the spiritual thing, it must be because of social impediments, because the souls are otherwise all equal. You know, the, the inherent natural capacities are otherwise all equal. And I think, while I certainly agree that many people are not able to reach their potential in whatever it is or that they're good at, or to find whatever it is that they're good at because of the way the society is structured, uh, I still think that the embrace of the spiritual egalitarianism leads to a responsabilization tendency that sits uneasily alongside that point. And for this reason, the kind of Christian leftist is always pivoting from uh, recognizing these social obstacles to looking to blame people who are privileged, who don't have social obstacles, who don't have excuses. Uh, and of course, that's not Christian behavior. The Christian ethicist says, hey, you, you're not supposed to judge. Uh, that's a prideful thing to do. You need to be humble and not judge people who don't seem to be living up to what you understand to be the values. Uh, but because of spiritual egalitarianism, there's this constant tendency toward responsabilization and therefore a tendency toward judgment, which is always having to be put off or delayed or obscured by humility and by this, this principle of humility, which is central, I think, to Christian ethics, you know, precisely because Without it, Christian ethics implies judging. It implies judging a lot. And because it implies judging so much, it is very difficult in practice for Christians to practice the level of humility that's necessary for Christian ethics to not produce judging. The logic of the ethic otherwise is so totally judgment-oriented that this humility is, is kind of the, the supplement that is never sufficiently present that yeah, you're always I, looking for more of i i find this interesting but i i wonder if there's another separation you know i mean it's maybe summarizing this slightly vulgar phrase uh when it comes to uh moral behavior which would be be something like love the sinner hate the sin right so that something like you know it, even if somebody does something that you will judge you're not fundamentally judging them <laughs> because they're they're worthy of of love and 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 all of these things um but you are rather criticizing the thing that they're doing and saying that this is bad for them or you know this is in itself a harm um and it would be a harm for for anybody right like and and this is i think one of the the issues that contemporary christianity is up against actually, and I wonder if we will see more and more attacks on Christianity as an institution because there is a sense in which it does have an implicit and very real judgment about certain behaviors that all human beings are capable of engaging in. Um, and there is textual justification for saying it's not okay to do certain things, right? Um, and of course, like we would maybe associate that with the Christian right. We would associate it with um, criticism of like homosexuality, for example, or criticism of adultery or forms of behavior, which are uh, not only kind of uh, accepted in liberal society, but even kind of embraced and celebrated, um, you know, and that there is a, there is a serious tension there, but I, I think it, but not just with the right, but also yeah. with the Christian left. In so far as this is what produces, if you don't have a social excuse, mm -hmm. if there isn't some reason that you aren't being a good person, 
uh, that comes from the society or the structure or some kind of impasse, it then gets blamed on your free will. Yeah. But and it does. That, I mean, <laughs> well, and that's, I think, I don't like that. I don't think that's right. I don't no. think that we have free will in that sense. I think that we have the capacities that we have and that they are different. And I, I think that just because somebody isn't able to, uh, isn't as capable of connecting with the divine or with truth or with the good doesn't mean that they don't have something positive to contribute to human life. For sure. But everybody has a capacity to decide, we would say, right? Well, I, I would make a distinction between decision and free will. And I think that the, the free will, the, volunteer, the voluntarism in Christian ethics makes the, the person who falls short responsible in a way that uh, doesn't just lead to judgment of the act, but of the person. That it's because of the spiritual egalitarianism that judgment of the act slips into judgment of the person. But there is this, I mean, okay, because could you argue, because there is this big dimension, I'm not a theologian in any way, but there's this big dimension of sort of grace under Christianity, which is supposed to like be before everything that everything, you know, you're, all sins are accepted. You are a sinner. You're by definition a sinner. So it's like, it, it doesn't matter about a transgression in a way. But are you saying that this is a tendency that that Christian people forget? Because I mean, what you're saying makes me think of like this idea that people have of love them to the Lord, where it's like, you acknowledge that someone's wrong. So it might be, you know, you might get some um, in the 20th century, some Christian people who were against homosexuality, they might um, accept gay people, but not like really affirm them or actually truly believe that this was the right thing to do, but they would accept them and just love them to like show enough love yeah. and grace that that would sort of overcome the transgression or they would see the right way. But but I, I actually think that Christianity, I mean, obviously maybe taking license here and reading it through a certain Hegelian lens is it like the primary technology of Christianity is is the acceptance because of this idea of sin and original sin. Well, like I, I would say, you know, goes. insofar as I understand any of this, which is limited, I would say my understanding is something like, you know, we're all sinners, right? So in the the, the point about not casting the first stone, let he who is without judgment cast the first stone. It's not only should you not cast the first stone because you yourself are a sinner, but the point is even Jesus doesn't cast a stone. So even if you want to judge someone and you think that you're in a morally righteous position in order to do so, you still shouldn't do it, right? Because <laughs> I would argue, yeah, that Christianity is the technology that tries to get you not to cast the first stone, but the human tendency always is. And then Christianity right. gets weaponized so it's, to it's do an that. Attempt, it's an attempt to solve the problem of punishment and, and you know everything that Girard talks about but it has to do that. preemptively by saying, go on. But it has to do that because it's introduced the free will in the first place. But, but yeah, but, but in a way, uh, there isn't. So it's constantly trying to make up for the fact that it's done this terrible thing. It's, it's responsibilized individuals. And so it constantly has to try to avoid or put off the consequences of having done that with forgiveness and humility and grace. And it's an unstable resolution. And it's always decaying yeah i mean i think that i think that's true I, I don't think it's a total solution but then nothing really is i think it, it preemptively tries to solve the sacrificial crisis by having the figure who's died before everyone else for their sins already so you already have sin and therefore you're not no one is in a position or no group is in a position to really fully judge another right so you try to preemptively prevent violence and the and the blood spiral from happening because you're all kind of guilty in the first place you know and then all you can do is sort of like be slightly better be a slightly better version but you will always make mistakes right so every week when you read the liturgy it's like we have sinned in thought and word and deed like every week you go in and it's like even in the Church of England, you know, it's like the most liberal institution ever. It's you still there is a kind of acknowledgement of your own failings. It's not the failings of other people. First and foremost, it's your failings that you will have well, made mistakes. You will have like upset people unintentionally or maybe you will have bit mean. You did something. Whether wrong. it's you or other people, though, it's not it's not in the totality. It's in particular people. And 
with with Platonism, you still have this idea that created beings fall away from the pr- the first principle, the one mm-hmm. or the form. So you still have this you know, reason not to be overly proud and to think that you are you know, outside of the human condition. But you yeah. also have this recognition that uh, you know the kinds of people that you have are the based on the kinds of cities that you have, the kinds of universe that we have, the fact that we're created beings in bodies, and so it doesn't place this emphasis on free will or voluntarism and therefore when there's a problem in the city it's not because specific people just have faults it's because the way the whole city is structured and indeed in some ways the way the whole universe is structured produces this kind of behavior and so it invites you to not look at either yourself or the other but the whole thing all taken as a whole and and these issues with you know, in the Timaeus, you know, Plato calls it the receptacle with the the thing in which the universe is made and the constraints that that thing imposes. Okay, we're over an hour, so we're going to go and do the B side for our Patreon listeners. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.